Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each podcast, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment agencies. Topics covered include IR35, protecting your recruitment business and the different challenges facing the recruitment industry. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners looking for expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast Series. I'm delighted to be joined again today by Simon Whitehead, Managing Partner of HRC Law, uh, where Simon specialises in employment law and has a great deal of expertise in the recruitment sector. So, welcome Simon. Um, We're here today to talk generally about good principles for business owners, um, protecting their recruitment business from risk. So I'm quite often slightly alarmed, if I'm honest, um, by how little some of the newer business owners I meet know about relevant legislation or updates. Uh, So for example, businesses that I've advised over the last year, um, very often the last time they fully reviewed their terms of business was um, more than nine years ago. And those were often just copied and pasted from their old employers. Um, and again, often contract businesses are completely unaware that they have to agree terms with workers. So can you help us to understand the, the overall um, panorama of risk for a mm. recruitment business owner? Yeah, well, it's a big subject, but um, certainly and I probably share your... I wouldn't say that I'm astounded by it because I think I've been doing it for too long now to, to be astounded because it's, it's a daily occurrence where we will receive a phone call and it's not always a new recruitment business. It can be recruitment businesses that have been going for a while and you'll start talking to them about the fact that they are regulated and that will come as a surprise to them. Um, and you know, A lot of the terms of business, for example, which is the foundation of your relationship with your clients and like all contracts, once it's done, you put it in a drawer and you hopefully will never have to read it again. And the only time that actually um, you may regret copy and pasting or um, just taking a standard set of terms and not thinking about how they apply to your business is where there's a breakdown in a relationship with the client. And predominantly you want to try and enforce your fee. And the other situation would be that when, um, if you got the employment agencies inspectorate turning up on your doorstep. So, when I first started advising recruitment businesses a long time ago, there was a lot more resource in the employment agencies inspection. And it wasn't uncommon to get a phone call from a client going, help, they're on the doorstep, they want to come in, they want to see all our documents. Um, the reality is, is, is the age of austerity and the cutbacks has meant that there's not as much funding there. Um, ultimately, those calls are fewer and far between, but they're still out there and they will still go and do checks. Um, and those that are working in the GLAA regulated sector obviously are used to having to deal with, with their regulator. But you know, general recruitment businesses of whatever flavour ultimately are, are regulated and are regulated by the Employment Agency Inspectorate. There are more resources going into that and they're going to widen the scope of how they will regulate, so they'll include umbrellas. 
but you know a lot of the things that are in terms of business um, come from the conduct regulations the employment agencies act mm -hmm. and the agency workers regulations um, and you know they are sort of pillars if you like of the relationship that you have with your client and time and time again you'll get someone exactly as you described who's going well they work for my old employer we'll bring them across and then over the years someone has tweaked and changed it going oh, I don't like that clause let's just take it out or, or we'll just add this clause and I've seen this somewhere else and time and time again you know the first thing you do when there's a dispute is right okay well let's have a look at the terms of business and time and time again um, you're in a situation where you're saying well either your definitions don't work um, your definition of how you introduce someone i.e the base on which you're going to get paid doesn't work you're not complying with the conduct regulations therefore potentially some clauses are unenforceable um, and you know that the, it's a real dog's dinner basically of, of trying to um, to claim back any monies that you're entitled to so I would say good set of terms of business is, is one of the key things that will cover um, a lot of the risk that you'll come across in your business and a proper understanding of the framework within which you are supplying as well and time and time again yet people will say to us yeah but the agency down the road is doing exactly this um, like it's a sort of a badge if you like and as much as well, if they're doing it we must be able to do it mm. and time and time again you have to say to a client well they obviously either don't care about the business or they don't know because actually what they're doing is, is un unfortunately unlawful um, but there is this problem and it's not just endemic in recruitment businesses but I say it's prevalent in recruitment businesses because I think as, a, as an industry we're, we're very entrepreneurial mm. and as a result tend to run at a thousand miles an hour and sometimes compliance isn't very exciting isn't very sexy but it is a real necessary part of, of setting up and running a successful um, recruitment business so apart from the risk of HMRC coming down on you we've got a whole set of um, regulations that apply particularly to this sector you just mentioned there the GLAA the Gangmasters uh, and Labour Abuse Authority I think mm -hmm. that's the correct yeah. name um, a lot of people may not be aware that it now exists and has a much wider remit than the old Gangmasters Licensing Authority did um, should recruiters be worried about this um, not necessarily, because I think, again, the resources just aren't there. I mean, the sector, the regulated sector, has not increased. Um, the GLAA were keen to increase the sectors, um, so, for instance, to include distribution and logistics, so that they could capture sort of the warehousing, the pickers and packers, and the volume industrial recruitment. Um, they were unsuccessful in that pitch to the government, and their regulatory framework still sits where, where it needs to be which is um, agriculture and food uh, predominantly. Um, and the reality is even though they can come into other businesses and to do enforcement, they've, re they've restricted themselves really to the regulated sector because that's where they need to make, ultimately make sure that their resources are being focused. Um, but certainly, you know, it will be interesting to see how things develop and you know, certainly it could be a situation where the GLAA are given more enforcement statutory powers as time moves on. Um, but I would say on the whole, my experience to date has been that really um, they've concentrated their efforts on those sectors that are regulated. But I would say to clients, is to recruitment businesses, is to look at whether you are regulated or not. Because actually the GLAA sectors and the, the, the licensing sectors actually go further than some people think that they do. Mm -hmm. 
So for instance, it can apply to the supply of permanent employees as well as temporary workers. Mm -hmm. So in theory, if you're supplying in, say, um, a manufacturing director who is going to be spending a considerable amount of his time on the shop floor or an engineer or something like that, then there is a potential that, that you may need a license from the GLA to supply even a permanent worker in. Mm -hmm. Lots of recruitment businesses just assume that it's just going to be a temporary worker and if you're supplying in the true sense of sort of gangs, if you like, of, of temporary workers, that's what they are would need a license for, but actually it goes further than that. Mm -hmm. And actually a client um, that I was at a meeting a, a few months ago said that actually we'd saved her business because she had not appreciated the need to have a license. She only supplied in permanent um, employees and she got one on the back of a seminar that we did and then um, six months later she had a visit and but for the fact that she'd actually got a house in order and got the license then potentially she could have been shut down and fined. So mm. um, it's real, you just need to understand whether it applies to your business or not. But mm. beyond that, I wouldn't be overly concerned. Okay, so the um, Information Commissioner's Office as well seems to be keeping a closer eye on recruitment agencies since GDPR, that might just be perception. Um, but uh, now that the regulation's in place, I'm wondering if there's any further clarification about, um, for example, recruitment businesses who are relying solely on the legitimate interest justification for all their data processing. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's not been a great deal of sort of case law, if you like, at that level of clarification. The Information Commission's Office has been quite good at sort of putting out um, circulars or, or guidance um, for, for businesses to follow and have, I think, been challenged by some of the specific issues that recruitment has thrown up um, and sometimes won't always give a, an absolute clear answer um, to a situation. I think the problem with a lot of legislation, and, and GDPR is a good example of that, is it's very much risk-based, which sort of links into sort of your first question, really. Um, and the onus very much now is on the business owner or the management team within the business to make decisions that are right for their business. So, um, you know, in one business, legitimate interest may work perfectly well, but actually a few tweaks and changes in another business, it, it may not be sufficient. So it is very subjective. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, it's one of those things that you need to keep a watching brief over because things are still developing. As I say, we've not got the case laws as it stands at the moment, but, um, you know, things are developing and, and practices are changing as well. Um, and the other thing that, that, that links into that are some new regulations around electronic marketing um, that require ultimately um, the ability to, to get consent to market to people, which changes things drastically as well. Um, and I think what we've seen is, is, is a sort of small number, if you like, of um, individuals that have said, actually, you've contacted me, I've not asked to be contacted. I've not, I've not seen a sort of tsunami, if you like, of those type of complaints. I think where we've seen a huge number of, of increases is in subject access requests. So people have reawakened the fact that they can make this request. They don't have to pay £10 anymore, but they think they're just more conscious of it. So we're seeing that time and time again, um, both in the context of claims where employees or recruitment consultants are bringing in, um, and in respect of disputes with candidates and with um, clients subject access requests tend to be the thing that we're seeing a lot more of 
um, that we did. Pretty right. Great. And so, on the basis of, of your experience, what kind of things tend to cause a problem with the subject access request? Um, I, th- I would say that the, the business world and the reliance on email causes a massive problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 20 years ago, we would have had a lot more face-to-face conversations, a lot more telephone conversations. There wouldn't have been the same audit trail as there is now. Um, what we're finding is that you know people sometimes don't engage brain before they'll send someone an email. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's very easy once that email has been sent. It forms part of, potentially, depending on what, what the content of that email is, but it can form the content of a subject access request and data that then has to be shared with um, the party that it refers to. So, um, you know, we've seen the real sublime to the ridiculous of, sort of people being quite disparaging about candidates and um, temporary workers and contractors internally, um, you know, never intending that communication to see the light of day. Um, and then obviously someone makes a subject access request and it potentially does. Obviously conversations to and fro in about contractual terms or um, issues that, that we're planning. Um, you know, it is a difficult one to deal with, but email really has created a lot of data if people are so minded to want to get that data out of you. That, that there is a repository there of, of data that will need to be disclosed. Mm. So I think that's probably one thing. It's hard to do in practice, I appreciate, but you know, just think about what you commit to email because potentially that could end up being sent to the relevant party. Right, so even internal emails, yeah. be aware that they could receive the light of day sometime. Okay, thanks. Now, um, employment tribunals, a little while back, of course, um, fees for claimants at employment tribunals were dropped, I think and um, claims have risen by a substantial, about 90% since then? Yeah, so what happened was that the government introduced fees and as a result of them introducing fees, the number of claims dropped by, I think it was about 85 or 90%. Um, And then the government were found to to have introduced those fees unlawfully and therefore they were removed. I wouldn't say we probably got back to where we were at the 90%, but certainly We've seen a massive influx in the number of claims um, and also a sort of a resurgence, if you like, in as much as um, readdressing the balance between employer and employee. Mm-hmm. So in the past, um, you know, employers may have had the better negotiating position because they knew that um, the chances of that particular individual bringing a claim in the employment tribunal were limited if they had a, a choice between paying the rent and paying a tribunal um, issue fee. Um, now that issue fee is no longer in, uh, in place, then I would say we've gone back to where we used to be, which is, is more balanced, shall we say, um, from the purposes of negotiation. And what we're finding as employment lawyers is that um, there's a whole generation of, of, of people out there, both business owners and managers, who have never known an environment where there's been no employment tribunal fees. And so they've got used to an environment where employees don't bring claims and are, in some cases, now very shocked by the fact that they can't do the same thing as they perhaps did 12 months ago. And the consequences are now different in as much as they're facing a claim. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and they are on the increase. And um, you know, that I'm sure it will get back up to where it was. I mean, the government have got plans and they have said they're going to look at um, employment tribunal fees again. Um, clearly, hopefully, they'll do it better than they did it last time. And whatever they impose or decide to do, doesn't become unlawful. 
uh, but there's no plans at the moment so the, the status quo if you like is here to stay for the time being. Hmm. Okay so in recruitment um, some of some people will be aware of a recent case involving um, a particular driving agency it was a staff on staff issue mm-hmm. that had taken place at a, a, a recruitment company Christmas party. Mm-hmm. Leaving aside the facts of that particular case, is there anything that recruitment business owners should do to protect their business from those kinds of things, given that we are an industry that has quite a lot of socials, mm-hmm. often drink will be taken? Yeah, I think um, as a result of that case, you have to accept that it's more likely that the company will be held to be liable for um, events that happen on work social events. And in that case, there was an argument to say, well, you know, there'd been a works party, so there'd been a, uh, an event which the firm, the business had funded and that had been uh, part of that, and then it had gone on to an after party, if you like, um, which the argument the company made was, well, you know, yes, okay, the works party, absolutely fine that is something that's that's happening in works time or you know we will be liable for but this this is a, an after party and we're not and the issue in that case was that a it was the managing director b the argument that led to the nasty incident and the fight ultimately was very much around that particular managing director asserting his authority and saying well i am the managing director um you are my subordinates my paraphrase um but ultimately the judges were very clear that in that situation that it was a continuing work event even though it had moved somewhere else it wasn't sanctioned necessarily by the company the fact that the managing director was there and the language they was using in the dispute meant that it was a continuation of that work event and i think the reality is that most of us if we put our thinking caps on and put ourselves in that situation it's going to be rare if you're out on a work event that it doesn't become a work event so the reality is we've just got to accept that if you're out socialising with your team in a working environment or in with, with a working team, then I think we've got to accept that the chances of the company accruing any liability in respect to that is quite high. What can you do? Well, you know, recruit properly, hopefully. Um, also, just basically make sure managers are aware of what they can and can't do and how they need to, to do it. So some training, some awareness, mm-hmm. um, policies and contracts. And none of them are going to be particularly sort of um, uh, foolproof, but at the same time, that's probably the best thing that the company can do because then they can show they've taken whatever reasonable steps they could to avoid that situation from happening. But you know, if the worst happens, then that's not necessarily going to get you out of jail, as it were. Even though it doesn't end up in jail, it just ends up with quite a large uh, compensatory payment. So um, there's not a great deal you can do other than just obviously make sure that those events are sensible and that people are aware of the rights and wrongs and how to behave in those situations. Okay. People are people at the end of the day. Indeed, thank you. Okay, um, something else that um, we've dealt with for the first time in 2018 has been um, gender pay gap reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, just focusing on the whole issue of equality in recruitment and employment, how can business owners um, protect themselves from claims about equal pay or discrimination in their own businesses? I think knowledge is king here. Um, and I think if you were to see a trend or try and describe a trend in situations where recruitment businesses end up in the wrong 
or the wrong side of the sort of legal fence, if you like, around discrimination or sort of equal pay. Um, the reality is most of the time that's been because of what we would call creep. So, you know, they've not necessarily been overtly discriminatory when things have set off in an employment relationship. It's just they've perhaps looked at what that person was earning and then they've matched it. And then other people have come into the business that have been earning more, so they've matched that. And no one's ever taken a step back and looked to see actually, are we paying in a fair and transparent way? Um, you know, are we consistent with our benefits and how we approach things? Um, and you know, that, that's the big tip really, is just take the time out to do a bit of an audit, to have a look at where people sit. You know, people assume lots, but actually sort of, you know, look at the um, specifics of, of individuals and how they sort of play out around an organisation. Um, and you know, it is a big issue because if you talk to most recruiter clients, so engagers, the people that recruiters deal with, you know, anyone that's dealing with HR, you know, that is one of the big things that they will say is, is what they're looking for is equality and diversity and inclusion. That's what they're all tackling at the moment. So being um, aware of it and knowledgeable about it in your own business is going to help you win business. Um, as well as protecting the business ultimately from, from potential claims. Um, and discrimination, well, you know, again, it's about probably taking the time to not make snap decisions or knee-jerk decisions, but again, make, taking the time to step back and have a think about things and just to make sure that decisions that are made, actions that are taken are consistent and are reasonable. Um, again, you know, what you see time and time again with discrimination is that it will start from a small seed, a comment that's been made, an action that's been taken, which in isolation isn't huge, but then as a sort of snowball gathers, if you like, or a seed grows and, and, and flourishes, um, you end up a year, two years down the line with a situation where um, a situation has developed, which means that it's very difficult to unpick. So what we would say to clients again is just take time out. You know, that's what we're here for, that's what you're there for, is ultimately to provide that objective voice, that voice of reason, um, the sort of devil's advocate, if you like, of sort of trying to address the other side, just so that they don't make snap decisions and that they're more thought about um, in respect of terminations or actions around sanctions or um, uh, anything around pay and, and, and contractual terms so that they can just sense check really what they're doing and how they're doing it. Mm. Thank you. So um, fascinating. We've actually covered quite a wide range of legislation there. Um, just to pull out a few um, of Simon's pearls, I think Terms of Business is a great place to start. Nobody should assume that there's a defence or a justification in saying, well, I know that X is using this or doing that. Yeah. Um, uh, and. Uh, if you haven't done so already and you're a recruitment business owner, you need to get familiar with all the relevant legislation um, and then stay up to date. So would you recommend that people take some time out in 2019 to do some kind of audit of Absolutely. their own businesses? Absolutely, because that's a starting point, is knowing what where you're strong and where you're weak within your business and ultimately then finding a resource to make the weaknesses into strengths. Um, and things are changing. And they're always changing recruitment. That's what keeps us interesting from my perspective and also makes it a nightmare from a recruitment business owner's perspective. But, you know, that's what we're here there for is to ultimately help recruitment businesses 
navigate those challenges and, and, and become compliant. And in conclusion, you know, I think Simon made a really good point there, which is that you can either regard this as a terrible burden and a bore, or you can get well informed and actually make it part of your sales, you know, a sales differentiator by being able to at least identify potential risk to clients. And, and it works. You know, we've had clients in the past where we've been to, to pitch meetings with them to, to basically first hand explain to them about the compliance requirements and the process and engage as a much more um, knowledgeable now than they have been in the past and much more demanding about seeing that you know what you're talking about from a compliance perspective. Um, so go to them on the front foot and use it as a positive. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, Simon Whitehead of HRC Law, we really appreciate you joining us again. This has been the Recruitment Leadership Limited podcast. Um, thank you for listening and I hope you'll be able to join us next time. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership podcast. If you've enjoyed our podcast, make sure you subscribe to get notifications of when the next one is available. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please send an email to alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk, referencing the podcast. You can also follow Recruitment Leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time for another episode of Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Thank you.